In the previous episode... So why are people given this advice to eat every two hours? Well, it temporarily circumvents the problem of the glucose plummeting after a meal due to high insulin levels. So if the blood sugar, somebody is having a reactive hypoglycemia episode and the blood sugar goes way down, yeah, eat a handful of whatever that has carbs in it and the sugar goes up. So what's happening here is instead of addressing the real cause, the root cause, we're just putting a Band-Aid on it. Welcome to Reinvent Healthcare, a podcast for health and wellness practitioners passionately committed to transforming our current broken disease-focused system. Your host, Dr. Rita Marie Los Calzo, is devoted to helping you get results with complex health challenges like autoimmune, hormonal imbalances, and chronic health challenges caused by nutritional and lifestyle-induced imbalances. Here's your host, Dr. Rita Marie. Welcome back to Reinvent Healthcare, the podcast for health and wellness practitioners who are passionate about making a difference. Today's episode dives deep into the science and clinical application of intermittent fasting and the important considerations for women, especially those who are still cycling. If you're a health practitioner who really wants to help people to get well, not to just cover up symptoms, not to just apply protocols, whether nutritional or pharmaceutical, we are doing a live event that's just right for you. It's called Functional Nutrigenomics in Clinical Practice. And it's all about how you can learn the genetic testing you can do with people to help you to personalize their diet and lifestyle plans. And when you put that together with your typical really great functional history and lab testing, you're gonna have all you need. So join us for an online virtual event that you can attend from anywhere. It's June 2nd to 4th. 2023. And you can get there by going to nesliveconference.com. That's nesliveconference.com. And we'll also put the link on the show notes page. Our guest today is Cynthia Thurlow, a nurse practitioner, an international speaker with, get this, over 10 million views on her second TEDx talk about intermittent fasting. And she's the author of the book, Intermittent Fasting Transformation. She's also the CEO and founder of the Everyday Wellness Project. With over 20 years of experience in health and wellness, Cynthia is a globally recognized expert in intermittent fasting and nutritional health and has been featured on ABC, Fox 5, KTLA, CW, Medium, Entrepreneur, and The Megan Kelly Show. She was listed in Yahoo Finance as one of the 21 founders changing the way we do business. Cynthia hosts the Everyday Wellness Podcast, considered one of the 21 podcasts to expand your mind in 2021 by Business Insider. Her mission is to educate women on the benefits of intermittent fasting and overall holistic health and wellness so they feel empowered to live their most optimal lives. Today, we're going to discuss intermittent fasting and provide you with strategies you can incorporate with your patients and clients to get great results and guidelines to be sure those you're working with are good candidates for intermittent fasting. Welcome, Cynthia. Thanks. It's so nice to be here with you. 
Um, it's so exciting to have you here, and I'm so excited about your book and all the work that you're doing to help women. Uh, I know that intermittent fasting has become mainstream. 35 years ago, when I did the first of my extended fasts, the longest being 28 days, I was considered a bit of a nutcase and an extremist. And 12 years ago, when I first started teaching intermittent fasting to participants in a blood sugar balancing program, the Sweet Spot Solution, intermittent fasting hadn't gone mainstream yet. Um, I find it to be super important strategy for metabolic health and overall wellness. And now, with the help of podcasts and TED Talks like yours, just about everybody I know knows about intermittent fasting. It's so cool. It really is. And I, and I love that it's been part of your lifestyle and the work that you've been doing with patients for a long, long time. Yeah, I think it's really cool. And like if you mention intermittent fasting at the grocery store... Most people know what you're talking about, which is it's just amazing. And most people have tried it, at least. So it's really cool. And so I, I know you have a definition of intermittent fasting you mentioned in your book, and I want to talk about that. What's, what is really intermittent fasting? Well, I think the word fasting really gets a bad rap. I think it can be fairly triggering for the average American who's eating food six to 10 times a day by a recent research study by Sachin Panda. So when I'm talking to my patients or my clients about fasting, it's really eating less often, and that makes it much more approachable and much more, much more of a strategy that people can wrap their heads around as opposed to feeling like it's incredibly restrictive. So fasting could be as simple as eating dinner and then not eating again until breakfast the following day. But as you know, most, if not all Americans are eating around the clock from the moment they get up to the moment they go to bed. And so this can seem in some ways very revolutionary, but as we both know, is much more aligned with ancestral health perspectives and certainly much more aligned with the way our bodies are designed to thrive as opposed to, you know, nowadays we have this climate of metabolic inflexibility, metabolic disease, and, and meal frequency definitely plays a role in that. Yeah, I totally love that definition of eating less frequently. That can, that can be going from eating six times a day to five times a day. And, you know, the, the further on with that, and it's less threatening than the concept of fasting, right? People get really scared about fasting. So let's talk about the benefits of intermittent fasting, especially from a clinical perspective. I know that in your book, you talk about hormone balancing, gut health, weight loss, and a whole lot more. So let's dig into how intermittent fasting actually works to restore balance to there's a lot of aspects of the body where it works for. Yeah. And I, I think that most people become curious about intermittent fasting in terms of body change, wanting to change body composition, wanting to lose weight, but as I remind people, there's so much more to it than that. And I think it really starts from improved mental clarity, which is a direct reflection of lowered insulin levels. We know that when our insulin levels are low and we're able to actually tap into fat stores for energy, it allows our body to free up uh, a specific type of ketone, a beta hydroxybutyrate. And this diffuses across the blood brain barrier, which is one of many reasons why we have this tremendous mental clarity. So that's always a first one that for many people is incredibly surprising. Number two is that yeah. while we're in a, in a non-fed state, we are tapping into a scientific principle called autophagy. And this is this waste and recycling process in the body. And when we're eating, this really largely gets disright, it is, is put on hold. And so when we're in a non-fed state, our body's able to go in and get rid of 
disease, disordered organelles, mitochondria, and get rid of them. And I remind people that when we're in this chronically habitually overfed state, that it definitely contributes to, you know, the potentiality for diseases, disorders, and even the potential for cancer uh, with these disorganized cells. So number two is autophagy. I think about the reduction in inflammation, because again, we're getting a better balanced uh, blood sugar, you know, glucose, as well as insulin, when glucose is up, uh, you know, insulin is also up. And I remind people that if you're chronically overeating and your blood sugar is trying to manage and mitigate this onslaught of, of caloric intake, those insulin levels, when they're up, it doesn't allow us to, you know, use fat as a stored fuel. It's really just using it to, to store the, the added fuel, extra fuel that's, that's laying around. We know that there's a lot of benefits with biophysical markers, things like blood pressure, blood sugar, uh, lipid panels, uh, inflammatory markers, all of which improve uh, when someone is eating less often. I think about the reduction in risk for neurologic disorders, including Alzheimer's, which we now really think of as type three diabetes, certainly more problematic as people get older. And I like to remind women in particular that we are largely protected from a lot of the cognitive disorders until we go into menopause. So we know that estrogen can be an insulin sensitizing hormone. And so important for people to understand there's an added uh, responsibility to really be taking good care of our metabolic health as we go from uh, cycling to non-cycling. So just acknowledging that there are a lot of benefits beyond just the body composition changes that a lot of people really choose to focus on. But I remind them it's so much more than that. The mental clarity, the autophagy, the reduction in inflammation in the body, uh, certainly the, the improvement in our risk factors for developing certain types of cancer, neurologic disorders is really a good starting point. And then lastly, I would also argue, you know, in many ways, the basis for most chronic disease in the United States and westernized countries is insulin resistance. And so insulin resistance is at the basis for a lot of things that we probably were not taught in school. I know I certainly wasn't taught that uh, insulin resistance was at the basis for most uh, male and female factor infertility, polycystic ovarian syndrome, certainly high blood pressure, hypertension. A lot of these chronic health dis diseases that we think of are really an issue with insulin resistance. And so really re-emphasizing how critically important it is especially given you know, a lot of the recent statistics. I think there was a 2018 study from UNC Chapel Hill really speaking to the fact that 88.2% at that time uh, were metabolically unhealthy. And I know that number is probably started to creep closer to 90 given the last two years. So really it, it's a strategy that nearly anyone can successfully utilize to improve their metabolic health. And, and I would argue after almost 20 years of working in cardiology, Given the fact that you know we're we're heading in this uh, this direction where things are not getting better in terms of our health um, biophysical markers, that it, it's something that all clinicians should be talking to their patients about. I totally agree with you. In fact, we talked about that on our first show about that 88 percent, and I think that was back in whatever it was two two eighteen. So yeah, I agree with you that since what's happened over the last couple of years, it's probably worse. It's probably closer to ninety percent, and that's really a sad and sorry statistic because people aren't addressing it. Right? They're not addressing their insulin resistance until they go to the doctor and get a test and they go, oh, look at that, your fasting blood sugar is here, so you have this problem. But the thing with intermittent fasting is we can address this much sooner be before it becomes a disease, right? 
So, so I want to dig into the hormones, right? Mm-hmm. We mentioned a little bit about estrogen, but in your book, I loved the, you, you explored the, of course, that the ones we think about insulin and glucagon and growth hormone and appetite hormones like leptin and ghrelin, but you also mentioned oxytocin and estrogen mm-hmm. that are impacted, well, actually positively influenced by intermittent fasting. So I'd love to hear about that. And then we can maybe flow into some special considerations for women. Yeah, you know, oxytocin is is really uh, not thought about enough, but yet it is a hormone that is a bonding hormone. It's a hormone that makes us feel good. You know, you think about it when babies are bonding with their moms and they're breastfeeding and that flow of oxytocin makes you feel really bonded to your infant. I think about just hugging your loved ones. You know, we've been two years into a situation where a lot of us haven't been able to get together with family and friends. You know, the 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 need for physical attachment, whether it's to a dog, a cat, a human, uh, your spouse or significant other, your children, all really important. What's interesting about oxytocin is you need hits of it throughout the day, meaning it isn't just one hug that's going to suffice for your oxytocin needs, <laughs> yeah. but we, we recognize how important it is for our mental health, for our physical health, how it interplays with our sex hormones, you know, estradiol, which is the predominant form of estrogen prior to going through menopause, progesterone, testosterone, as well as many other hormones. And so I encourage people to find ways to bring joy into your life. Could be as simple as something that brings you joy is getting outside and walking outside every day for 10 or 15 minutes or reading a good book or connecting with a loved one over the phone. If you're not able to see them in person, really creating opportunities throughout your day so that you get that, you know, that influx of oxytocin, which makes us feel good, makes us feel great, uh, which explains why, you know, there there are people out there that have many, many children because they love that baby stage because it's so deliciously oxytocin rich. With that being said, you know, also speaking about estradiol, which is the predominant form of estrogen, there's actually three main types of estrogen. Um, Estrone is the predominant form of estrogen uh, that we find in menopausal women, but estradiol is the one that most of us think of when we're thinking of estrogen and its role within the body. And I think, unfortunately, you know, given our, and I, I don't know how else to put it, hedonistic lifestyles where we have access to everything 24 seven, whether it's food or movies or, you know, just having direct access to anything in the world almost instantaneously, that also has encouraged a, an environment where we're exposed to endocrine disrupting chemicals, you know, not only in our food, but our environment, our personal care products. And so I always say estrogen is grossly underappreciated because we just don't realize what happens when it's not properly balanced. In fact, I, I would argue, I was just interviewing someone for the podcast a few weeks ago talking about water and how, um, and this is tangential, but worth mentioning that most municipal water supplies uh, don't filter out hormones. So when someone takes synthetic hormones like oral contraceptives, et cetera, and they urinate in the toilet, it gets flushed into the water supply and, and that's not filtered out. So we are all exposed to synthetic estrogens on a pretty frequent basis. So it's something that we all need to be concerned about. And especially when we're speaking the contact of balancing hormones and eating less often. And so I like people to also understand that estrogen is, um, you know, found in fat tissue. So, you know, if people are dealing with, you know, being overweight or obese, um, they have more estrogen rich tissue. And so if they lose weight and certainly if they are losing weight uh, or changing body composition with intermittent fasting, 
um, they are oftentimes improving their, their estrogen balance in their body. And like I mentioned before, most of us are getting far more synthetic and endocrine disrupting type estrogen chemicals, even if we aren't intending for that to be the case. So, you know, one of the things that I, I find so beneficial about fasting in general is that when we're looking at, you know, balancing hormones and looking at the interrelationship between insulin, uh, which I've already mentioned, the insulin sensitivity, uh, you know, goes along with having adequate and appropriate levels of estrogen. It's important to also talk about how when we're dealing with, you know, insulin sensitivity improvement, uh, we should be getting the byproduct of that should be, you know, improved estrogen levels. And, and more often than not, when I'm speaking to perimenopausal, menopausal women, they're really dealing with too much estrogen. So that can be tackled for many different ways. But one of them is eating with less frequency. So you have better balanced blood sugar, better balanced insulin, more insulin sensitivity with the mitochondria, which are the powerhouses of the cells, and then digging a little deeper to look at the other you know, transient ways that we're getting the non-beneficial types of synthetic estrogen into our life and cleaning those things up as well. Wow. There's a lot there, a lot to unpack. <laughs> and I you know there's, it's, we think about, so here's a thing that most women, as they go through menopause, they're not thinking about balance, but they're thinking not enough estrogen. Yeah. And, and I think there's so much misinformation. You know, I, I certainly finished my nurse practitioner program at the time, the women's health initiative uh, research was, uh, you know, shared in the medical community and, and certainly with the media. And, and the more I learn, the more frustrated I, I become uh, because I think there's been a whole uh, litany of misinformation that's been shared with within, you know, the media, uh, which has led people to be fearful about uh, even the utilization of bioidenticals. And, and for every person that's listening, that really is uh, very much an N of one, very much a bio-individual decision that you and, and your healthcare team need to make together. But I think there's been so much misinformation that's been shared about bioidenticals and, and to the point where uh, there are very appropriate times where people do need some, some hormonal support and they're fearful to use it. I've had women uh, cry to me because they they are they're so fearful of even taking progesterone or testosterone or any type of you know thyroid replacement and and to me I think we've really done women a, a tremendous disservice but I, I think first and foremost the lifestyle piece and and that's something I know that that we're very aligned on lifestyle medicine is really the first step it's not starting with hormones as a as a an aside it's really looking at the choices we make in terms of sleep and stress management and nutrition. Uh, and meal frequency and the right types of exercise that are going to do more for our hormones than just focusing solely on pharmaceutical options. And they, they do play a role for many people, but I also think that's not the starting point. And I, and I think that's largely a departure from a lot of my peers, uh, but I do find you have to do the foundational work before you can even think about adding in medication if that's indeed what someone needs. Yeah, I totally, totally agree with you there. And I think that there's been an over-reliance on pharmaceuticals. And yeah, they mm -hmm. save lives. Yes, you know, give somebody that can change their life to have bioidenticals. But if you're, they're still eating Cheetos and drinking Coke, mm -hmm. the, it's, it's not going to have the same impact, right? And, and we really, the whole concept that you stress over and over in the book is, it's not just what we eat, it's when we eat. And that's where intermittent fasting really makes a difference. I see people who are eating beautiful food, lots and lots of green leafy vegetables and fruits and nuts and lean meats that are organically raised and whatnot, but they're eating all day long. 
And it's impossible to have metabolic flexibility, to have good metabolic health when you're flooding your system with insulin all day long. So I'm yeah. right on. And it's, it's interesting to me that when you really reflect, if you ask people how they feel when they're eating frequently, they don't feel great. You know, it's that classic carbohydrate burner that, you know, has slumps in their energy and they don't realize it's not normal to want to take a nap after a meal. I always say to my husband, if I ever, ever, ever need to take a nap after a meal, it is a sure sign that I got my macros, you know, kind of askew and I'm pretty conscientious, but I remind people that most people walk around being chronically tired with energy slumps and they, they deal with weight loss resistance. And I said, those are always signs that your macros and your meal frequency is really off. So a lot of it's this retraining that everything I learned as a clinician about, you know, three meals a day and snacks and heart healthy grains and so much that I learned even at a, a, you know, a a big research institution that I now have to untrain people around and, and really support them. And I know you do this as well, really retraining people's mindset about the nutrition that they're eating along with the meal frequency. Absolutely. And that's the thing that gets overlooked a lot. I was listening to an audio book just a couple of days ago and I oh, about this great stuff. And, and then you can have a snack. And I'm like, no, no, don't tell them to have <laughs> snacks. It's not the way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, you mentioned about, you know, we talked about estrogen and oxytocin and we think about estrogen and oxytocin as female hormones, although, you know, males do have them as well. But what are some of the considerations for women? You especially talk about women who are cycling in different times when they shouldn't be fasting versus when they should be fasting. And I just really want our, our practitioners out there to know how to use intermittent fasting judiciously and to counsel people about the the right timing, so to speak, of intermittent fasting, especially cyclically? No, it's such a good question. And and this is where I think a lot of the the fear mongering goes on, on on social media and abroad about, you know, whether or not it's dangerous for women or women shouldn't employ intermittent fasting. And I always say we wouldn't be here as a species if that were the case, because, You know, the concept of famine, you know, feasting and famine is something that's that's part of our entire species and our evolution. But first and foremost, when we're looking at a lean 30 something woman at her peak fertile years, that's very different than a middle aged woman, even one who's still cycling that is obese and needs to lose weight. So, you know, first and foremost, if you have a very lean patient or you yourself are very lean I don't like to see people doing prolonged fasts. If you're already lean, I I think there's the law of diminishing returns. You have to be careful. And I remind people that our menstrual cycle really is a barometer for our health. And if, if you're fasting and, you know, maybe for a cycle or two, your menstrual cycle gets a little, little lighter, a little heavier, or goes away, that can be a sign that it's too much of a, too much of a stressor. And and the term hormetic stress is, is something that, I I use alongside intermittent fasting, meaning the right stress in the right amount at the right time. I don't like fasting for women the week preceding their menstrual cycle. It's just a time when, uh, you know, the luteal phase is a, a special time. It's when progesterone for the most part predominates. It's not the time to be restricting your food. People can certainly do 12 hour fast. I don't have a problem with that, but also leaning into not fasting while you're pregnant, not fasting while you're breastfeeding. Uh, you know, there there's conversations that I've had with other leading experts, you know, lots of physician researchers. And we talk about the potential for epigenetic changes 
if you are in a state of caloric deficit, significant caloric deficit. So it's just something to think of. And I, I do see a lot of the fit pros on social media that like to talk about how they've been able to intermittent fast through all their pregnancies and they wear it like a badge of honor, really not a time to be restricting your, your macros. And then, you know, the other pieces, jokingly women that are middle-aged that get stuck, that aren't sleeping, they desperately want to lose weight. And if they're not sleeping, the first thing I say to them is if you aren't sleeping through the night, I can't get you to lose weight. So sleep really is foundational. And I would be the first person to say, irrespective of whether you're still cycling perimenopausal, menopausal, if you're not sleeping, work on that first. And then, you know, slowly integrate utilizing fasting as, as an opportunity. You know, some of the the general contraindications that I think about are things like if you have a distorted relationship with food. So if you have a history of bulimia, anorexia, or binge eating, unless you are working with a very talented eating disorder specialist who has agreed that you are in a position where you can successfully do this. And I know there are always exceptions, but I find for a lot of people, it can be very triggering to try to restrict their food intake. Mm -hmm. So that's number one. I think about people who are just too thin, like there are plenty of them out there. People with a BMI less than 18 or 19, probably not the appropriate time to be fasting. And I'm very transparent about three years ago, I, I spent 13 days in the hospital, lost 15 pounds. I'm not a very big person. And it took me months to be able to get back to a healthy weight where I could even attempt to fast because I had lost so much weight. I think about people that have chronic illnesses, you know, chronic illnesses could be, could have significant liver, kidney disease, cardiovascular disease. It's not that it's a true contraindication. And there are certainly lots of people who have been able to heal their bodies from chronic disorders. I just think it's always important to have a conversation with your healthcare professional. And I do find more and more now, uh, more healthcare providers of, of different backgrounds are, are now very receptive. I think it's important to be checking in if you've got, you're on diabetes medications because you may need adjustments in your medication. Same thing with blood pressure medication, really just having that conversation. And lastly, you know, I, I'm not a fan of fasting for children or teenagers. They're still growing, really not appropriate. I did, however, uh, during that talk that you mentioned in the very beginning, I got slammed because I mentioned uh, not fasting after the age of 70, and you have to believe that every outlier 70 year old reached out to me and, and made sure they understood they did not appreciate me putting an age on there. So if someone's frail, uh, if someone's debilitated, if someone has brittle diabetes or they've recently been hospitalized, probably not the best time to add in that stressor. But for most other people, in most instances, I do see tremendous value. And I think even if people are fasting three days a week, that's three days that they are tapping into autophagy, getting their insulin levels down and really benefiting metabolically. And that's really the, the place that I come from is a place of love and really wanting people just to be healthier so that they can go on to spend more time with their loved ones, be able to you know, provide more to their community, um, be in a position where they're going to have a, a happier, healthier lifestyle. Absolutely. Wow. So I want to ask this, I want to, this is a good time to clarify. There's different kinds of intermittent fasting, right? Well, there's fasting and there's extended fasting, but when we're talking intermittent fasting, you talk a lot, a lot about that in the book, the, the different kinds of, of uh, fasting regimes. So when you say like somebody who's underweight, they shouldn't be fasting. I certainly see that they should not be going a whole day without eating and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So are you still thinking, so first of all, explain the, the, the various types and your experience with them and what you find to be most effective if there's one maybe it's just varies from person to person and then 
if we're talking somebody who is in the luteal phase, or are you saying they shouldn't be doing like a 16 hours, eight hours kind of window, or that they just shouldn't be doing longer fasts? So um, I know there's a whole bunch of stuff built into yeah. that, but I yeah. want to really I, I clarify think, for people as they're listening. Yeah. No, so the 16-8 is a good benchmark for people to aspire to if they're new to fasting and they're looking to, uh, you know, start from maybe a 12 hour fast, they go from dinner to breakfast. That's a great starting point. You will still get benefits predominantly of digestive rest of not eating so frequently. So let's be very clear that you're still doing benefits, but you really want to work to, it's like a muscle. You want to work the muscle out so that you are working it over a period of time. So you're developing skill sets. So the goal is to go 16 hours faster, but many people start with 12 and they slowly open up that window. In the case of someone that is in the luteal phase, I don't want them fasting more than 12 hours a day. I have people who will argue with me all over social media because that's not what they want to do. And I just said, well, this is based on the research and working with thousands of patients. And this is my best recommendation. And inevitably, they'll get you know, three or four days before their menstrual cycle starts. And they literally cannot wait to break their fast. They're so fixated on food. And I said, because the luteal phase is when your body actually needs a little bit more macros anyway, that is not a byproduct of me waving a wand. That is physiologically what your body is looking for, because it, it, it is, hasn't been able to distinguish whether or not it is fertilized an egg and getting ready to uh, start a pregnancy, or if you're going to start menstruating in a couple of days. So the, the body is, is not differentiating at that point. Now, I think that there are many types of fasting. There is types of fasting where people just fast twice a week. There are long fasts, you know, 24, 36, 72, four to five day fasts. Um, my book predominantly focuses on the 16, eight, because that is an achievable outcome for most people to work towards. And so I am a big fan of people fasting on a daily basis because there are so much benefits when it becomes part of your lifestyle, as opposed to, oh, there are two days out of the week where I'm going to fast for 24 hours, or there are two days out of the week that I'm going to consume 500 or 600 calories. That is much harder for me personally to do. Mm -hmm. um, I, I like to exist in the space where I know there's, you know, there's a black and, and white area. This is the time when I fast. This is the time when I eat. So when I'm teaching people how to go from three meals a day and snacks to going to fasting, that seems very overwhelming, but I, I encourage them to think about it as baby steps, slow and steady wins. So every step forward is getting closer to that goal, being very clear about what their goals are so that when they feel like they're really struggling, they can say, okay, the reason why I'm doing this is I want to get off of X medication. The reason why I'm doing this is I want to get healthy enough to be able to chase after my children. And when you can reflect on those goals, it makes it much, much easier to subjugate a temporary desire to break your fast early. Obviously, I don't encourage anyone to walk around being hungry and miserable, but there are so many strategies you can use to, you know, blunt your hunger cravings in a way that's beneficial for the body. Um, I'll give you one example. You know, there are polyphenols, there are compounds in bitter tea and coffee that will help blunt they'll help blunt hunger cravings. And so that's an important distinction. That's I don't tell people to drink coffee or green tea or black tea while fasted just because I'm doing it because there's actual physiologic benefits from consuming these, these polyphenols. So getting back to your original intent, there are a lot of different windows for when people are in a fed or a fasted state, but I think it's easiest for people initially to start with consistency. And then when they are consistent and they are fully fat adapted, then you can get creative. Like 
in the book, I talk about a lot of different variations, but the creativity comes after you have mastered the basics. I agree with that so totally. And and having that predictability, because there is an adaptation period. So if you're going to just do 16, 8 twice a week, those three days in between, you get adapted and then you have to readapt to the period of, of not eating. And I, th- I think it's, I agree with you that I like to help people to find their ideal fasting window. And mm-hmm. so for some people, it might be shorter. For some people, it might be longer. What do you find, like, do you see a big difference between like 16 hours of fasting versus 18 versus 20? Cause I know a lot of people are in the, you know how they are. They get competitive. Oh, I got to 16. <laughs> now I got to get to 20. Now I got, Oh, how many hours did you fast? So is there a really a benefit to going longer or does it actually just make people more crazy and hungry and <laughs> want to eat more when they actually sit down to eat? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a, there's a couple things at play. There are definitely people who have a competitive nature and they're going to push the envelope and they're always extremists in every, you know, strategy that you look yeah. at. You know, obviously, the longer you fast, the more you're pushing autophagy, the more, you know, growth hormone secretion you get. But I think it's always in the context of what are your goals. Now, for me personally, after spending 13 days not being able to eat, I haven't done any really long fasts since then. And I may never do really long fasts again. I don't do more than a 24 or 30 hour fast because it it brings back some trauma of being in the hospital. (laughs) But I do have people that wear like a badge of honor. You know, if two days makes them feel great, then they want to push to four. And I always ask them, what is the purpose You know, some people like the spirituality aspects of longer fast. They feel very connected to their sense of purpose. They feel connected to to God or or whatever, you know, whatever they identify with in the universe. Um, Some people, they're they're just they really like to push the envelope and they just want to, you know, set another goal for themselves as long as they're not hurting themselves and they're sleeping and they feel good and their energy is, is fine and their cycle isn't totally messed up. I think that's reasonable and feasible. But I I always think in the context of when you're looking at the benefits and you're looking at stem cell activation, when you're looking at gut rest, when you're looking at, um, you know, digestive rest, some people need to fast a little longer to get more of those benefits. Uh, You know, there's always the clarification pieces of, you know, clean fasting versus dirty fasting versus what's bulletproof coffee versus what Dave Asprey, who I like Dave, um, but Dave sometimes, you know, throws, throws things out there. And then I'm getting challenged on social media about that as well. And I always say, it's always in the context of, are you a standard American diet eater? Who's a couch potato, or are you someone who's been physically active and is a healthy weight? You may need to start fasting very differently. And there's nothing wrong with training wheels, as I call them, if someone needs to, you know, add MCT oil as an example, because they're really struggling just to get to 13 hours because they are so carb addicted and they've been eating a standard American diet and even asking them to walk for 15 minutes a day seems overwhelming, might be very different than someone who's already fat adapted, pretty healthy and can effortlessly and easily get to 18 hours. So First and foremost, I I do like variety. I do encourage variety after people have the basics, but the comparisonitis that is exacerbated being on social media where again, people wear, you know, whatever they they show all their, I've been fasting for 36 hours and they want to screenshot their, their app. I think that's great. Some people really need that accountability, but there are just as many other individuals who then feel inadequate and they wonder what's wrong with them. And so I just say, stay in your lane 
do what works best for you. Don't compare yourself to anyone else. I'm as guilty of this as anyone else. When I start having days like that, I'm like, I just need to get off of social media and I need to focus on my purpose and why I'm doing this and what's, you know, what am I trying to get out of it so that I am not, you know, going into, I call it like the dwindles of doom. There are people who definitely are very influenced by what they see. And so sometimes it can be influenced in negative ways. And so I remind people, what's your purpose? Um, you know, how did you feel after your fasting? How was your sleeping? How was your energy? And if you feel great, then you can continue on with maybe doing a little longer fast next time. If you struggled and felt miserable and could not get yourself out of this, you know, negative thinking cycle, then it's a sign it wasn't, it was too much, too much stress on the body. Remember we talked about hormetic stress, the beneficial stress in the right amount at the right time. Sometimes it's not the right time and that's okay. Like I can tell you when I was in Costa Rica with my family at Christmas, I uh, ate like big breakfast and then I didn't eat till dinner time. And that was a complete change to what my body was accustomed to doing. But we were outside in nature all day long. And I was like, well, I'm definitely not going to stop at lunchtime. So I might as well eat now. And then I'll eat, you know, eight hours later. And it was great. It worked out fine. I still got my macros in my feeding window was obviously a little wider than it is normally, but it's good for our bodies to get some variety. Yeah, I totally get that. And I love the the concept of focusing on why you're doing it. Because a lot of people like that badge of I'm eating this way, or I'm eating that way, or I'm fasting this way, and not really tuning in to what's happening in their body. And I mm-hmm. kind of got into that a couple of years ago. I, I decided I was going to do a five day fast once a month. And for the most part in 2019, I did it, I think I did 10 five day fasts, which is crazy, right? I am not overweight. I, but no. I was like, I got to do this because I said I was going to do it. Oh, is it time to do it again? Okay, I'm going to do it. And finally, in 2020, I think I might have done like two five-day fasts the whole year because I just couldn't bring myself to do it. My body was saying no. And maybe back in 2019, I needed it and it was a good cleanse. But by the time that next year rolled around, it, I just had to tune into what my body really needed and wanted. And it said, nope, no, thank you. We don't want to do this as much anymore. And that's okay. I mean, that's the big thing is I think all of us do different things at different time periods. And, you know, for me, uh, obviously I've been fasting not as long as you, but I, I've been fasting for five or six years. And for me lately, I've been finding that I don't want to fast until one o'clock in the afternoon. So naturally my body wants to eat around 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning and I eat and I've just come to find out I I actually end my feeding window earlier than I used to. I really am following chronobiology. So I eat when it's light out and I don't eat when it's dark out and I Mm. sleep better and I track all of my Uh. aura ring data. And I I remind women, especially middle-aged women, the aura ring and I have no affiliation with them. Let me be very clear. I love knowing how much REM and deep sleep I'm getting. And I can completely correlate it with eating later in the day, getting too much light exposure in the evening completely messes up my sleep. And so I have gotten very, very diligent about breaking my fast earlier, eating earlier in the day, ending my feeding window before it gets dark, before it really gets dark out and I'm sleeping a whole lot better. So I encourage people to really experiment to find out what works best for you and your lifestyle. And it might be seasons. Like you mentioned in 2019, you did a lot Mm -hmm. of longer fasts and then 2020, you didn't want to do as many longer fasts. So don't force anything. I'm I'm not a believer in self-flagellation. Like if you don't want (laughs) to do something, don't force yourself to do it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I have two more questions and then we'll end. I know this could, I could go on and 
talk to you for hours and hours <laughs> and hours about this stuff. But two, two more questions. One, um, thyroid, right? So many people, mostly women, are suffering from thyroid imbalance. It's like an epidemic. And so there's a lot of talk about thyroid imbalances and should we intermittent fast? Should we fast? What does it do to the thyroid hormone? So I'd love to hear your take on that. Yeah, you know, it, it gets a bad rap. Um, and for full disclosure, I had an underactive thyroid, probably mild Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune disorder, which is the bulk of people with Hashimoto's have, yeah. well, the bulk of people with hypothyroidism have Hashimoto's, like almost Hashimoto's. 85 to 90%. Uh, so it wasn't fasting that caused that. And it's more common to see that in middle-aged women for a multiplicity of reasons. I have come to believe, and when I talk to thyroid experts, they agree that it can actually improve the quality of your mitochondria because you're getting rid of this, you know, you're getting rid of the disease disordered cells. With that being said, um, I think it's critically important that people are checking in with themselves. Now, if you fast and you have energy and you sleep and you feel good and you eat an anti-inflammatory diet, et cetera, great. If you have a thyroid issue and you're not sleeping, you're gaining weight, you don't feel good, you can't get through a workout, uh, you're not eating an anti-inflammatory diet, probably not the right time to add in fasting. But I do have lots of patients that will tell me that they feel so significantly better eating less often, even with thyroid health issues, that they try their hardest to make sure that they're really dialing in on the lifestyle pieces so they can continue doing it successfully. And I can tell you, you know, after looking at thousands of people's labs, um, more often than not, when we can get their sex hormones better aligned, when we can get their insulin and their glucose better aligned, the thyroid will fall into place. Like one thing that the pearl that I always remembered when I was a new nurse practitioner was if you see thyroid issues, make sure they're not insulin resistant and don't treat cholesterol problems until you get the thyroid back in line. So if anyone's listening and they have thyroid issues and they're insulin resistant, well, they all play a role in, in together. I mean, the endocrine system is this beautiful symphony of hormones, but if one is out of whack, so is another. And I think it's really important for people to understand that I find for a lot of people when they clean up the insulin resistance or they improve their blood sugar stability, oftentimes the thyroid will, will improve as well. And so I, I think that's, that's important. Number two is if you're working with someone on thyroid health, ensuring that they're doing a proper thyroid labs, that they're not just looking at a TSH and a free T4 and sending you on your merry way. Cause there's a lot of subtleties with thyroid. Mm -hmm. And I think this is probably one of the least well Gosh, I don't want to be super critical of my allopathic peers. However, I think this is one of those areas where I know myself as a clinician working in cardiology, unless you were dying of thyroid storm or myxedema coma, we didn't really worry about thyroid. We left that to the internal medicine docs, the hospitalist. But uh, how many opportunities were missed with patients who probably had subclinical hypothyroidism and they were clearly hypothyroid and they weren't being treated and they felt terrible and they were cold, they were constipated, their hair was falling out. Uh, they had all these menstrual irregularities. So make sure you're working with someone who can look at the thyroid comprehensively and not just do two labs and tell you that you're fine. Because had I not had a really good clinician when my thyroid started acting up, I probably would have been one of those people walking around like a zombie, which is 
what I saw a lot of 40-ish year old women doing was that they were so undertreated for their thyroid and no one was willing to give them a lifeline. It's like a terrible analogy, but they weren't willing to send them a little SOS to get their, maybe, you know, sometimes it can be something specific that can impact the thyroid, but really important for people to understand that there's this whole interrelationship between our entire endocrine system. We have thyroid receptors on every cell. And I think it's really, really important for people to understand that you can fast successfully with thyroid issues, provided that they're stable and provided that you're sleeping and, you know, eating an anti-inflammatory diet. I think it can be, it can absolutely be done. Great. That's great to hear. And those who, you know, my my practitioners that I train, we don't teach them just to do two labs on thyroid. Mm -hmm. It's a full panel. And so it's super important to address that. And also that's the other thing I teach is that if you've got somebody with thyroid imbalance and you don't address the insulin resistance that's there, it's the thyroid's never going to heal. So I love, I love all that you shared. Last question. I promise you, I just want to clarify window. So 16 hour fasting window, eight hour feeding window. Is it as effective if somebody starts eating at the beginning of the eight hour window and kind of munches their way through (laughs) to the end of it versus having two distinct or three distinct meals in that window? Oh, well, I think, you know, my answer to this, I don't like snacking. And so each time you're eating and if you're secreting insulin throughout the day in response to food, you are going to shut down some of the key physiologic processes that we talked about. Like autophagy is a good one. Um, I remind people that if we want to become metabolically flexible, we have to eat less frequently. So if you're eating from 10 a.m. in the morning till six o'clock at night, you're not doing the same kind of benefits eating at 10, eating at two, eating at six. Very important distinction. That meal frequency, the time when we're not eating, I use this one, there's one, um, you know, the migrating motor complex is like one of these nerdy concepts in the digestive system, but it's an important one for people to understand. It really takes our bodies about four to five hours in between meals to be able to detoxify, push things forward, um, address pathogens if they, if we've ingested them and we knock out the benefits of the MMC if we are eating too frequently. And so it's something that I teach my coaches, even the ones who are not clinicians to really understand, like, I'm not just saying this because I want to be a party pooper. I'm saying this because I want you to understand why our bodies are not designed to be a dumping ground. Like it's one thing if you go to a party, you're on a holiday, it's something different. But if that's what you're doing to your body every single day, you're not giving your body an opportunity to break down, detoxify, digest, assimilate the food before you're dumping more food inside your food gullet. That's what one of my professors used to call it, the gullet, Um, gullet. really explaining to people why it's so important. So to reiterate, you are much better off having two meals in an eight hour window or or three. You know, some people are, are very, very hungry as opposed to eating from the time you open up your feeding window to the time you end by the time you end it, because that chronic habitual, it's no different than what the average American is doing. Sugar, sweetened beverages and foods throughout the day, which is really detrimental to our health. Yeah, for sure. We know that, but even if it's good food, it's still not good to Mm -hmm. just start your eating window, eat, and just munch your way through to the end. And I think some people make that mistake and say, oh, intermittent fasting doesn't work for me. I've tried it. Mm-hmm. I've done that 16-8 thing. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you for all your wisdom. And thank you for your podcast and your book and your TED Talks. So we'll have links in the show notes to Cynthia's TED Talks, two TED Talks, the book, and um, 
there's some good bonuses when you when you use the link in there to buy the book. And I encourage you to go and check it out because the work that Cynthia is doing in the world is phenomenal. So before we end, I'd like you to share what is one thing you want to leave our listeners with, our practitioners, our doctors, nurses, health coaches, etc., with that will help them to shine in their practices based on this. Oh. I love that. You know, I, I think it really, if we are an example to our clients, to our patients, uh, I, I think it's really important that we are prioritizing sleep um, because I, I know for myself that I can be ready to serve others, not just my family and my community, but to serve others when I've had a good night of sleep. And, and unfortunately, I was conditioned and, and came up in a time when you sleep when you're dead. So there was a lot of years of not getting enough uh, high quality sleep. And, and I think this kind of catches up with you in middle age. So for everyone that's listening, really emphasizing high quality sleep every night and finding hacks to be able to do that because the better quality sleep you have, the more you can bring into your business, into your patient population and be able to offer more to others. I, I just, sleep is, is has become like the new frontier. I just cannot get enough finding out more about sleep and trying to share it with other providers, practitioners, my coaches, so that they can impact more lives. Mm, thank you. That's so, so valuable. So we've been talking to Cynthia Thurlow. Go check out her Everyday Wellness podcast. We'll have all of her links in there, her new book, The Intermittent Fasting Transformation, and learn about the IF45 program that she put together. And I've got a free download for you on intermittent fasting. It's like a 16 or 18 page, very technical, clinical, geeky kind of handout booklet. Um, and you can get that at reinventhealthcare.com forward slash fasting. And I just keep on, keep on, keep on. We are here to change the world and practitioners like Cynthia and all of you have the ability to turn our system from a disease management system into a true healthcare system. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the reInvent Healthcare podcast. Join the movement of practitioners that are guiding people to actually get well rather than covering up their symptoms. Connect with us at reinventhealthcare.com to access resources and tools that will empower you to create a thriving health practice.